This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is George Saunders, whose latest book, collection of short stories, is Liberation Day. There are nine books of fiction in all, the most recent being the novel Lincoln in the Bardo, several short story collections, including 10th of December, Civil War Land in Bad Decline, and there are three books of nonfiction. Since the last time I spoke with you, there's been a lot of media, including a movie called Spiderhead, which we'll go into a little bit later. George Saunders, last time I talked to you, which was for Lincoln and the Bardo, I asked you if you had anything on the horizon. And at that point, you said you hadn't even started another short story. And I think this was 2017. So bring us up to date between 2017 and the start of the pandemic, and we'll go from there. I think if I remember correctly, right after I got home from the Lincoln tour, I finished the story called Mother's Day that's in the book. And then I took a long break to write a book called The Swim in the Pond in the Rain about the Russian short story. So there was kind of a uh, maybe a year and a half break from stories. And then I came back maybe a year before the pandemic started and started working again. Uh, that Russian book, you know, studying those stories and stuff, it had really kind of made me fall in love with the short story again. So I was just cranking away. What is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain? Yeah, well, it's a book I had been teaching for 20 years. I've been teaching a class at Syracuse University to these really talented young writers that we attract there. And the class was just looking at about 14, 15 classic Russian short stories from the 19th century. So Tolstoy, Gogol, Chekhov, and looking at them from a craft perspective. So reading them and kind of trying to basically see what we could steal, you know, just uh, looking at them from a technical standpoint. So I taught that for 20 years, loved it. It was, you know, I think the best class I ever taught, always look forward to it. And then um, sometime around that uh, Lincoln book, I my teaching changed and I stopped teaching that class. And so I just had this kind of flash of like middle or late middle life insight, which is if you don't write this down, it's all gone. You know, all the um, kind of built up wisdom put together by talking about these stories year after year. So I just said, I, you know, I'm going to try to take six months and write up my lecture notes. And of course, that grew into a, a two-year immersion in, in seven of the stories. So it's kind of a craft book, I guess, a little bit. It turns out to be a little bit about, yeah, how stories work on us, what approaches in stories seem to, to catch us, you know. Uh, so it was really kind of an unexpected diversion, and I really loved it. So it came out, I guess, about a year and a half ago. The title just refers to there's a famous swim that uh, Tolstoy and Chekhov took together at Tolstoy's estate the uh, first time they met. And Tolstoy was probably, you know, 70 or 80. And he said to Chekhov, let's, let's go for a swim. So they, these two great masters, you know, stripped off and, and went swimming. And then years later, uh, Chekhov kind of used that in a beautiful story called Gooseberries. So it was kind of the idea that, you know, we're going to take a break from all this strife and all this confusion and animosity and just kind of swim in in a pond and in the middle of it this delightful unexpected rainstorm starts when that was done you'd still just written the one story at that point mother's day i think so but i may have you know i can't remember there i'm guessing there must have been times during that when i took a break to try to finish a story but for sure maybe one or two things were, were in progress at that point 
Let's start with Mother's Day. Uh, what I saw about it and also another story, Mama Bold Action and I guess A Thing at Work, all three stories depend on the internalized thought processes of one or more individuals. Did that idea going into it, into a story that way, did that come out of reading these Russian stories? Well, you know, I did that a long time ago in a story called The Falls. And usually what happens is I'll, I'll, I'll start a story in one point of view and I'll just get stuck. And I'm trying to, you know, get the thing to kind of bake into a, a whole souffle, you know, to, to rise and I can't do it. So sort of as a, as a default, I'll just say, all right, let me put another person in here and seeing it, see if that, um, additional viewpoint will break things open a little bit. So I always try not to do it. I try to just keep it in one point of view. And it's at a certain point, the story will kind of, you know, kind of look at me with his arms crossed. Like, I'm not going to go any further until you give me somebody else in here, you know? Uh, so that was the case in, in those, in those stories. And I'm not sure exactly why my mind would do that, but I, I think it's because, you know, when I think of the world and what's like sort of the ultimate truth of the world or the highest truth we could understand about it, it seems to me that that's really what it is. It's a bunch of individual consciousnesses running around in a city or, you know, in a mall or whatever. And each one of them, you know, kind of believes that it's the center of the universe and that this whole world is kind of a, a beautiful show that's appeared for them to, to star in. We all think we're permanent. You know, we all think that we're fixed at the center of everything. And so since each of these individuals believes that, hilarity ensues. And when one of those uh, people meets another one, you get conflict, you know. So as a go-to for me, if I just can try to describe one mind working, even on a very small problem, for me, that's the root of character. And then once you get that one character, if you can make another one, that's the root of conflict. And so it's kind of just a... a, a go-to approach, I guess. In A Thing at Work, you start with this one woman kind of making fun of other people. And I guess at a certain point you realize, well, wait a second, this person is kind of an ass on her own. <laughs> so we can just kind of jump into someone else and they'll be watching them. Exactly right. Yeah. You know, you, it's, it's so fun because you get inside of a person's head and of course they you know, any of us will tend to be sort of self-justifying and everything makes sense to us. And then I love the moment when the reader starts to feel kind of at home in that person, but they might have a few doubts, you know, as you're suggesting. Then you pop them out of that head and put them into adjacent, an adjacent person's head. And you get sort of this beautiful holographic effect where you're seeing two people from inside themselves and you're also seeing each other from, you know, so it gets suddenly very... Um, very alive. And uh, it means that you don't, as, as the author, you don't really have to be rooting for anybody, but you just have to be paying attention to everybody. The character in Mother's Day, well, she comes across, well, actually all of the characters in that, they almost come across as Trumpers, as does the second character in The Thing at Work. In the back of your mind, was there kind of, I mean, politics doesn't exist in these stories, but I'm just thinking they sound a lot like the people who were interviewed in cafes in the early years of the Trump administration. Well, that's interesting because Mother's Day, I think those two characters 
I'm quite sure that they predated the Trump thing. I might have polished the story in those days. In Mama Bold Action, that was something I noticed myself. That she, she makes an argument at one point. An old guy pushes her son down, her kid. And so she gets very angry about that and kind of militant. And some of her arguments are arguments that I've heard from the right. I mean, even predating Trump, the idea that, well, I guess it's sort of prioritizing of, of security, you know, and, and even into the border discussion. And I started to think about that, like, should I, should I go ahead and give her a specific political affiliation? But then I thought, you know, no, actually fiction for me, it works best when we're talking about general human tendencies. So she could also, I think, in a story be a kind of a centrist or even a progressive who just feels that flaring up of a kind of reactionary sentiment. You know, I certainly felt it. I think everybody does. That's why it's such a, a volatile topic. So to me, in the end, it was more interesting to leave the temporal politics out of it and just look at what happens in a human heart when they feel threatened. In a sense, it really doesn't matter which human heart. Every human being, when threatened, has certain responses. So I, I do kind of like the idea of a sort of not real, really an apolitical universe, but a kind of atemporal universe where we're not really going to be, you know, invoking real politicians' names or even real political issues but I guess the idea is that politics always starts with some human thought, you know, some human inclination. And what we call politics is just really those small micro inclinations writ large, maybe. In A Thing at Work, when we drift back into the woman who is a very poor thief, the resentment of the Trump voter almost surfaces verbally. Yeah. I actually forgot about her. That's true. I, I think, you know, I can remember being a young guy in my 20s in some financial difficulties, you know, really feeling that kind of the, you know, the foot of capitalism in my throat and uh, having a very similar thought like, ah, oh, someday, someday when everything is reversed and I'm in charge, you know. So I, I do think that's something that could be mapped onto the current right wing movement for sure. For me, it is somehow, I, I'm not sure, but with things as fraught as they are right now, and with as much kind of quick take thinking as there is in politics, I always feel like when I put a specific identifier of somebody's politics into a story, it kind of takes the, the air out of the balloon a little bit. You know, I, I've been trying to get you to open up to that woman, you know, to see her almost as a part of yourself, you know, to, to be identifying with her so closely that when she gets fired, it kind of breaks your heart to suddenly pin her as a member of this or that group or this or that political movement, I think somehow, I don't know, it just feels in my gut that it's against my purpose in some way. So I, so in this book, especially, I, I tended to not, not pin things down in that way. You're right. The empathy disappears completely. We can't identify with her once she goes over the top yeah. and even becomes a racist or anti-Semite or homophobe. At right, that right. And I don't think she is, you know, I, actually, I imagine that story taking place sort of in the 90s, actually. But but your point is really a smart one and an interesting one. And I think, it, it, you know, uh, my understanding of fiction right now, or at least my, my fiction, is that it's somehow involved in the process of taking a broad indicator like Trump voter and then saying, OK, well, let's let's not use that phrase because that phrase gets us into hot water pretty quickly from all directions. So suddenly we know what we think of that person. And we even think we should be actively against that person. So let's just not use that phrase for a second. And let's start describing her with smaller and smaller specific observations. You know, how does she talk? How does she think? 
Uh, what, is, what kind of food does she eat? Uh, what are her habits? Once we do that, something more profound is happening between the reader and this character. And I think it does have to do with finding that in some ways we're on a continuum with her. So, I mean, mechanically, what that means from my point of view is if I can make that happen, you step into my story more. You believe it more. It's, it's because it's sort of about you or about thoughts you've had or tendencies you've seen in yourself. You are more willing to be in the story with me. So that's good because then it's more likely you'll finish it. But then beyond that, I think something else is happening, which is I don't, I'm not sure. I think for me, when I'm reading a story like that, I feel just affirmed one that I'm not totally alone in these things I've been feeling and thinking. And two, that somewhere out there in the person of the writer, there's someone who's not so different from me. And, you know, together we're sort of puzzling over this dilemma. We're kind of celebrating this made up person. So it might just be that it's a, it's a, a, a brief suspension of judgment so we can get free of the kind of auto judgments that we may have around politics or around what, you know, whatever topics. I'm not sure. It's, it's your, your, your line of questioning is really interesting to me, and I'm not sure I totally have an answer. I guess the next question is how conscious all of that is, or is it something that you think about afterward and say, that's why I did it? It's very intuitive in the moment. And what I'm trying to do, actually, I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to get into the mind of this woman. And really, the one rule is I'm trying to think of the world in the way that she thinks of it. Uh, how would I say it? I, I'm, I guess I'm trying to um, imagine myself into her mind and only think of herself in the way that she would think of herself, even if those ways aren't consistent. I think it's it's very intuitive, and it has to do on the on the first level with making sentences that have some, the way I would think of it is have some spark. So, for example, a sentence that is dogmatic or vague or has an agenda tends to not come alive on the page the way that a sentence that's specific, uh, curious, uh, and fact-laden tend to come alive. I wrote about this in the Russian book a little bit. So first priority when I'm writing is just to make a sentence that you can't look away from. And somehow in this mysterious way, everything we're talking about is subcontained in that aspiration. If I make it so that you can't look away from the sentence, somehow there's a mood of fun and a mood of empathy and a mood of complexity that gets made. Yeah, it's a pretty narrow goal for me. I'm just trying to write a sentence such that the next time I read it, I don't feel antipathy toward it. I don't feel bored by it. Is that via, say, going back after multiple drafts? I mean, are you writing the story quickly and then going back and going sentence by sentence? For me, it can be any combination of the above. But on that one, on Thing at Work, it was writing a three or four page monologue in the voice of the character and then coming back again and again and trying to make that more spiffy, you know, trying to speed it up, trying to make the jokes funnier. And in that process, these little moments will present themselves where the character will suddenly re reveal herself. You know, you're just make, you're trying to make a joke better. You see that the joke you have is a little cheap. You delete it and another joke or another moment appears that's slightly more nuanced and, and voila, suddenly you just found out a secret that she was keeping from you. For me, it's kind of like usually a section of the story gets made. It's too long and it's too sloppy. It corners too loosely. I work on it for a day or a week or a month or sometimes a year. And then it starts to tighten up. You know, it gets more undeniable. And as it tightens up, it also tends to produce the next thing. There, it causes something. So it's a very slow process. And I've learned to be pretty patient with it. 
But day to day, it's just, can I make this thing, this collection of 80 sentences, can I make it 60, you know, that, that somehow have more power in them? And then just do that over and over and over again until you're satisfied. For all of them, how do you know it's done? Yeah, well, that's the million dollar question. I think it comes down to just a feeling, you know, it's, it's like you've um, been through it so many times. And what tends to happen is the early pages finally get nailed down. And every time you go through them, you're like, yeah, that, yeah, okay, that works. Or, you know, maybe you think, oh boy, that's pretty good. But then you hit page six and suddenly it's, it's loose. Okay, you fix that on and on and on. And at some point you've reached what you feel to be approximately the end. And, um, you know, it's kind of a week long process, weeks long process where you keep reading those first 15 pages and they keep seeming pretty good. And I think that's doing some work on your subconscious where you're, you're kind of understanding what bowling pins are still up in the air, so to speak. You know, what, what, am, what is my story saying? What questions has it asked that I haven't answered? Then now you're down to the last page and you're thinking, okay, that's, I'm getting there. The, the path is narrowing. And then you just revise that last page like crazy. So it's, it's a really strange um, intuitive process, but the sort of the, benefit of having done it for so long is that I kind of know where it's headed. So that gives me a little extra patience. You know, I can sometimes say, yeah, well, I think I'm at the last page. I probably have another three weeks before I really know that, you know, and uh, when you're younger, I think you, you, you get impatient and also you tend to, you know, blame yourself. Uh, this, I, I can't finish the story. I must not be a writer. I must be terrible. But at this stage of life, it's just like, well, that's my subconscious, you know, and it's kind of a big old, very fast bear, you know, <laughs> and it, but it doesn't want to be told where to go. So if you wait and wait and wait, it'll finally get up and run. Uh, but, but the patience is kind of the skill. Of this. You said something interesting, which I kind of wonder about when you're talking about a short story. One of the questions you said you ask yourself is what questions haven't been answered mm -hmm. in the context of a short story? What exactly does that mean? Okay. So Let's see. I'm trying to think of an example from the book. Uh, well, okay. On, on the simplest level, the, this story we're talking about, a thing at work. At the end of it, the, this woman that we've been following around and having probably mixed feelings for, she's, she's a poor woman. She gets fired. So originally, I clipped the story off at the moment of her firing, gave the reader a little a look at the, the man who'd fired her, the end. So when I read it back to myself, there was just sort of the feeling of having one foot in the air. And the question I wanted to know the answer to was, where is she right now? You know, so here's somebody who's been kind of victimized by this, this structure, because she's like the least powerful person in the story, and the powers that be decide to kind of sacrifice her. It just felt to me like the story was incomplete without a final look at her, right? So that, so that becomes then a structural thing. Well, okay, then I have to find a way to uh, end on her, I have to find her. Where is she right now? Oh, she's leaving the building. I have to go and work on the scene with her. So the questions are not really, often they're not big thematic or, or you know, philosophical questions. It's more the feeling of this, yeah, the, the story having one foot up in the air still. And for a feeling of completeness, it wants to, wants to come down. In that story, the mom of bold action, for example, this woman makes a, a decision. Well, actually, a woman is, is faced with a decision. She, she knows some information about something she and her husband have done that's kind of sad. That's tragic, really. So I got to that point, and then I thought, oh, look, I just made myself a very nice decision moment, which is does she tell her husband that fact or not? 
you know. So it, I, another way of saying it is you're always looking to see if the story has something else. If, if the story has one more little bit of escalation left in it, you know, and is there w- one more way that the story can be meaningful in even the smallest way? And if the answer is no, then you should just end it. But often in that kind of, you know, that page 15 last, you know, period of, of revision, you're micro revising to find out if the story has any slight dollop of, of uh, meaningfulness in it. It's a strange, it's strange to hear myself talk about it because it's such a, a, a weird intuitive process, but it really does work like this for me anyway. George Saunders, there are three stories in there which are out and out science fiction. Liberation Day, which is the title story, Ghoul and Elliot Spencer. Those stories do have some political background, but what I notice about all of them, and I assume this is conscious because maybe this is how you wrote it, in all of the stories I was extremely confused going in trying to figure out what the heck it was reading, and then slowly, little by little, it forms into a conscious thought of, oh, this is what's going on, almost as if the writer himself didn't know. You put your finger on it, Richard, yeah. <laughs> for me, the um, the whole game is on those kind of stories, and maybe all of them, is to wait for a voice to arrive that I'm excited about. You know, Can I do this voice, and can I sustain it? And that's the first thing. So then often there's a period of just goofing around for a while, just playing with this strange voice that came to me and exploring it. And at some point, then, of course, she's, you know, speaking of questions that the story asks, I started asking myself, okay, who is, who's talking? Who's talking in this weird voice? And then I think at that point, the, the game is to let the story lead you to that. You know, you, you notice a certain um, pattern in the language. Why is this guy talking that way? And so, yes, I don't know at that point. And I'm going to try to find out and then clarify it somewhat. But but I hope the effect is, as you describe it, you, you come in and you think, wow, I'm hearing a weird voice from the next room. I can't make sense of it. Oh, wait, I can kind of make sense of it. Oh, I see. So that's really the game, I think, is to walk into the mist and then the mist slowly fades away. And one of the kind of, I guess, you know, internal rules of that is, I don't want a character to speak or think in a way that's unnatural to them just because that way of would be expositional. You know, that moment where like if you were reading a, a story about right now and I said, you know, George picked up his cell phone, a small handheld device used to communicate distantly. There's something weird about that because neither one of us would ever think to need to describe a cell phone. We, we know what it is. So there's some sense of trying to be authentic to the in, in these cases, futuristic world that we're in and to not do that, you know, that kind of very tempting thing, which is to slip an explanation to the reader too soon, because that I think has the effect of puncturing the, the kind of uh, fictive spell if you've, if you've cast one. Liberation Day in particular, I started reading and I'm going, uh, okay, these are AI. Oh no, they're not. Maybe they're dogs. <laughs> That's the next one. I like that. Suddenly, Wait, they're on a wall. And as I'm reading, we eventually come around because as you give clues, those clues tell us something new, which throws the other assumption right out the window. Right. right. So when you're when the clues arrive, are they kind of just spontaneous clues? No, I'm really 
participating with you, the future reader, in, in your confusion. So in other words, I've written it. I'm now I'm reading it on Thursday. I'm trying to imagine that I haven't read it before. And I'm, uh, I guess you could say I, I can feel when I'm being coy. And I don't want to do that. I can also feel I'm over explaining and I don't want to do that. So it's this is why I have to rewrite so much is there's just all these little micro adjustments. And I'm imagining you on the other end getting confused and impatient. And then I'm like, OK, I, I need to th- I, I need to somehow, you know, throw Richard a little bit of hope here, you know, give him a clue. Uh, but also I'm discovering those pretty much at the same time. You know, I'm reading and I'm thinking, I don't even know what's happening here. And then I'm introducing one more layer of specificity, partly for my own benefit, which would be for yours. So, but again, though, I think the only reason to do that is, is because you're trying to make it feel real, you know, like uh, in that novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, when when I was in the point of view of one of those spirit beings, I, I wanted you to feel what they felt and know what they knew, what they would never think is, Oh gosh, I'm a ghost. You know, they, they wouldn't think that that's not within their, the realm of possibility for them. So that too is a kind of a sci-fi in that if I wanted to confine myself to the points of view of the characters that were speaking, I could never sort of drop the full explanation on the reader because the characters, none of the characters had the full explanation. That beautiful movie, um, Children of Men, and there it's a very sci-fi movie, and they never really stop to explain what's happened. But you see Clive Owen walking down a street and he walks by at this insanely terrifying uh looks like an uh, immigrant concentration camp and there's an explosion and he so so part of the pleasure of, of that i think is you're gathering the details about this world at speed and you don't have that kind of buzzkill moment where the author steps in and say now let me explain what what's happening you know that's the whole exposition moment that everybody tries to avoid and the lazy writers and lazy screenplay writers just can't figure out a way to do it, but there is a way because you are doing it. Right. And as long as, I think as long as the writer acknowledges his own confusion at certain moments, you know, like I'll say, for example, in that story, Ghoul, that was one where I, I knew the rules I'd, I'd made. And as the story was moving along, I'm like, wait a minute, why are those people underground? That really became the question of the story. There's a, it seems to be an underground theme park. And I thought, well, why are they down there? And I said to myself, don't answer it. Just wait. The story will answer it for you. You know, so you, you keep waiting and waiting. And there's a critical moment where the character finally thinks, holy cow, why are we down here? And then the story at that point will conspire to answer it. And even if the answer is as it is, nobody knows. There's a certain satisfaction in that. If, if it's been if the question and the answer are, are arrived at naturally by the character, I think. Again, none of, I don't really, while I'm doing it, I'm not really thinking about any of this. But as you're very interestingly implying, the writer is enacting the same process that the reader will eventually go through. That's, that's the article of faith that I think makes fiction so kind of oddly comforting to be involved in. Liberation Day, the title story of the book and perhaps the most recent story, is that correct? I think except uh, my house was, the last story was, was the very last one to be finished, but, but Liberation Day was before that, yeah. There's a lot of information given about Custer and Custer's last stand. And it struck me, wait a second, was he kind of beginning to research that for a Lincoln and the Bardo type novel that went nowhere? 
Sort of. I actually had been reading about Custer, I mean, for since the 80s. One, one of my professors in grad school, uh, because I had this mullet, uh, blonde mullet, used to call me Custer. And, and he recommended that Evan uh, Connell book, uh, Son of the Morning Star. So I, re- I read about Custer and it just became kind of a hobby, really, to, to read about him. Uh, and then, yeah, at one point, actually, you know, I, I was, after Lincoln and the Bardo came out, I was having that usual anxiety about what's next, what's next. And I had a dream in, um, in which the whole book appeared to me, what the next book would be. And I scrawled down on a piece of paper by my bedside table, the title, which was Custer in the Bardo, you know, <laughs> so I thought, okay, that, that that's not going to work. So then I thought, okay, I'm, I, I'll just wait. And then at one critical moment in writing this story, I needed a kind of a hefty historical vignette for these characters to think about and, and enact. And, uh, I, you know, really, I just had it handy. I, I had all that information about and fascination with Custer. And I thought, oh, what the hell? Just throw it in. We'll see what happens. You know, it, it, I, so much of what I do is just kind of like, uh, do I have enough to do it? And it will, will it be fun to try it? And then you, the revision is where you try to make coherence out of it. But the initial impulse is mostly just fun, you know, fun and fullness. Both Elliot Spencer and Liberation Day have at their base something very similar, a kind of reprogramming element. Where does that come from in George Saunders? It mostly comes from desire to uh, do weird voices every now and then, you know, to, to find uh, a voice that is not conventional English, that, that's funny in its strangeness. And then in those two cases, well, see, I think what happened was Elliot Spencer came first. And I was kind of along those lines thinking, well, what would a person sound like if you could take all of the, basically take the data out of the brain and just reduce the brain to operating system again? I was just curious, would a person's habits be contained in the in the operating system or are they put in by the, the data of experience and so on? And so in the midst of thinking about that, uh, which was also kind of related to meditation and the idea that, you know, for a while I kind of misunderstood meditation to be the idea of trying to get rid of all your thoughts, completely quiet your mind down. So in the, in the course of thinking about that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what would a person in that kind of brain wiped condition sound like as he first started to talk? And then, of course, the answer would be gibberish. But then, OK, well, let's give him a coach. Let's give him somebody who is helping him. What would language first look like in an adult as he tried to reconstruct it? So that just became an excuse to to make a funny voice, basically. And then I think with Liberation Day, similarly, you know, it was just like, well, I had Elliot Spencer in mind. I had this brain wiping idea and it had proved pretty fruitful. So you sort of just revisit those things and give them a slight turn, you know. And I had a third story, which I didn't finish, where someone who'd been brain wiped was reprogrammed to be sort of a surrogate spouse for somebody who'd who been widowed. I kind of think of it all as pretty playful. You just come up with an idea and you try to sort of squeeze as much out of it as you can and... And then after the fact, then there is meaning and there's political implications, but those are going to be there no matter what, if you've told the story as intensely as you can. Obviously, Elliot Spencer gets pretty political toward the end of Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. As does Liberation Day, which almost, as I was reading it, and maybe, I'm not sure where it came from, but I kept thinking of Bunuel. Yeah, yes. And also, I think Bel Canto by Ann Patton. As I was writing it, I, I was struck by that novel as well. But, you know, I, I think one of the things I tried to do in this book was to just, as we talked about earlier, uh, if I felt my contemporary 
progressive politics, using the stories as a way to make a definitive statement. I tried to warn the story off because I, I think fiction can do better than that. I mean, I have my, my views and I, you know, I write essays and I do all the things that all of us do in this very weird time. But f- fiction, I think, has got kind of a, I don't know, it, it works best at a slightly higher register where we say, okay, let's, let's um, set aside our usual system of judgment. Just set it aside. We're not abandoning it, but we're setting it aside. And we're just having a little afternoon of trying to think of things with a little more, I guess you could say compassion or, or uh, specificity or something. So like in Elliot Spencer, there is, there is kind of a politics there, but actually in, in the way I imagine that story, whatever the other side is, they also have programmed protesters. I think the idea is that the company that he's working for is, is probably something like a, you know, the descendants of today's right-wing movement, but it's very likely that the other side has the same, maybe, you know, I don't know. That's not stated, but. Obviously, in something like that, you could take it however you want. Um, <laughs> the reader can, you know. The three stories I haven't mentioned are uh, Love Letter, Sparrow, and My House. And what I noticed about Sparrow and My House is both of them almost serve as counterpoint within the context of the book, in that we're not stuck with unhappy stories. We're stuck with wistful in one case and happy in the other. And to find them in the book, I mean, they were written separately. They kind of give you a chance to take a breath. And I'm just curious about how much that taking a breath actually was in your mind when you were writing them. No, I think it's, it's exactly what happens. You know, you write a story like Ghoul, and, you know, it takes me a long time and I have to really be in that mindset. And it's a dark story and it's kind of a pretty wild story and um, does not come to a happy end. And so you finished it and maybe it's been in the New Yorker. And so you're getting some feedback and, you know, and, and part of my mind goes, ah, you know, that's I do. I do feel that way, but I also feel this other way. I hope no one mistakes the viewpoint in ghoul for my entire viewpoint or my, you know, my fixed permanent viewpoint. So then suddenly something else starts to well up in you, which is sort of like longing to complicate or contradict what you've just said. And then that might become a story like my house or, or sparrow. So I think the trick is just to be open to again, fun because fun in that context means what do you feel inclined to do? You know, it's almost like if you went on a long trip with your friend, and you found yourself just kvetching for 30 miles, you know, then there's a silence in the car and you think, ah, I've kind of overstated the extent of my unhappiness, you know, then you, okay. So then you, you throw another monologue at your friend in order to sort of present yourself in totality. And so in a book of stories, which are of course written over many years, the trick I think is just to sort of be honest about what you feel like doing next in the hope that by the time the nine stories are done, they'll say something really complicated, you know, that, that it doesn't allow you to, you or your viewpoint to be pinned down, but, but presents kind of a, yeah, like a, the totality of what you might think about life. So a story like Sparrow, which has actually, for me, a very sweet ending. I really want you to read that against Ghoul, which is almost a direct contradiction of it and let those two things hang in the air sort of that's what I have to say is that feeling of contradiction and complexity. 
The only story that I haven't mentioned, which I'll get to now, is Love Letter, and that's because it's the only overtly political story in the collection. So I guess on some level you felt the need to write that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you know one of the, one of the um, I suppose the built-in shortfalls of this approach I'm describing is that you might tend to not call evil evil. You know, you're so so anxious to try to explain everything and be in empathy with things that sometimes, you know, you can display what I've, what I've heard called idiot compassion, you know, or everything equally okay. But as we know from history, you know, that sometimes things are not okay at all. And, and a more energetic and maybe even like wrathful response would be at this point, in my view, for a person to say that America is in bad shape, we're in a dangerous moment of flirting with autocratic tendencies. I don't even think that's political. I think that's just science. For example, to say that Russia is in the wrong for invading Ukraine, that seems to me like science. So I think, you know, with that story, I felt, well, it is political, but also let's not, let's not kid ourselves about the, the moment we're in. And then at the same time, I had a second goal, which is, okay, I'm going to write pretty directly about my feelings about this moment. But in fiction, you're always trying to get a little distance between a writer and character. So that speaker in that, in that story, who's a grandfather writing to his grandson, it's not me. It started out to be me. But then in the process of rewriting it, he moved a little bit. He became a little more cautious than me and a little more, a little more like an ostrich with his head in the sand than I hope I will ever be. But that's, you know, that's how this story gets told is you, you create somebody, but they're not you, they're of you. And then you put them out into the world and, and see what happens. And by the end of that story, I think, um, I hope anyway, that it's it's become more than polemic because we see, uh, you know, the kind of, I guess, universal story of a person who is acquiescing to be part of an evil system because he's afraid, you know, and because he's, he's maybe correctly understanding that all that will come of that is the destruction of his family. So, and then towards the end, I think he's slightly talks himself out of it just a little bit. He's just starting to maybe um, come around to what we as readers have felt about him, which is he's he's acceding too, too quickly, maybe. But I'm, I'm not really sure. George Saunders, I want to turn to films. And when I went to IMDb, there were two earlier short subjects. But I noticed uh, three films that I'd never heard of as films from 2017. Sea Oak with Glenn Close, which you wrote the screenplay for, Exhortation, and then a version of Lincoln and the Bardo. What are those? Well, the first one I know, we, we did a pilot for Amazon uh, of the story Sea Oak. It didn't go to series, but it, I was really happy with it. And Glenn Close was in it, and it was just a riot. Exhortation, I don't know. It could be just somebody just made a short film. And Lincoln and the Bardo, the only thing, I mean, there hasn't been a movie of that yeah, there was a um, uh, a really wonderful short VR film that we that we made. A guy named Graham Sachs directed it. So it's a three dimensional holographic short film. Uh, but I think that's probably what that's referring to. But then there's something a short subject called Adams with Patton Oswalt. Oh yeah, that was really good. It was a uh, a director Tom Stern uh, wrote a script and shot a really charming, funny uh, short film. And I think it was at a couple of, um, of film festivals. And I think it's it might be on YouTube, but I'm not sure. And of course, then there's the actual film Spiderhead, which I 
would have watched had I realized that it was based on one of your short stories because it's on Netflix with Chris Helmsworth and Miles Teller. Yeah, that, I didn't really have much to do with that one creatively. They they bought it a few years ago, and um, a couple of screenwriters did. I get I kind of sort of like a fantasia on the story, but acting was amazing, and the, it looks beautiful, and it was kind of fun to. I, I had that moment of driving down uh, Wilshire here in L.A. and seeing seeing the movie poster, and that was kind of my, my eighteen year old self would have liked that. So it was it was a fun a fun experience. Does it have much relation to the story? Yeah, I think they made some different decisions at certain moments because of course that story has a pretty a pretty dark ending but yeah no it's it's definitely uh, uh you can feel the the story at its core but then i guess as screenwriters have to do they they sort of you know made it their own thing and, and took it in, in their the direction that they thought was uh more interesting did you have any connection with the film as it was being made no no it, it was kind of a, a more of a you know they they purchased it and then um they're nice enough to let me see a very late version of it. So I really didn't have uh, much, much input. George Saunders, in 2020, we all shut down. What happened with you? Did you immediately start teaching online? Yes. Uh, I taught the last two falls uh, entirely online. And then um, we were we were up in Santa Cruz, and then the, there were some fires that were kind of close. So we went to New York for about eight months and then came back. So it was... Uh, a, kind of a bit of travel, a bit of going back and forth, but uh, the teaching was online, which actually was all right. You know, it was kind of, um, it had a sort of a different feeling to it, a little, almost a little more focused because you, you know, you weren't with them and then suddenly you were and you were talking about their stories and then you got off and there was in a sense, sort of a less of a social feeling to it. And, and then of course there'd be a, I do an hour long phone call with each writer after the story. So it was, it was kind of, um, not as bad as I feared it would be. And in some ways, it was even better. Did you ever get COVID? I have not yet, knock on wood. I'm about to go on tour. So that's kind of, uh, did, did you get it? Nope. Well, nope, but who knows, which is that in December 2019, and this is before supposedly COVID was in this country, I got sick for about four days, dry cough, high fever, couldn't get out of bed, stopped eating, lost weight, then regained it within a month and was told, oh, that's the flu. But the, oh, and my uh, taste buds were really awry for about a month and a half. Yeah. But on the other hand, it wasn't in this country, quote unquote. So maybe I haven't had it. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's really, we, we had something like that in our house too, right? At the very beginning, this kind of strange illness that didn't quite fit the, the, uh, the brief, but yeah, it's really, uh, it's been a crazy time, hasn't it? I think it's going to be interesting to go out and, you know, be in front of people again. And, you know, I'm hoping for the best. I, I don't know if you felt this, but I felt really the the absence of face-to-face -face contact and all those little visual cues that you get from another person. And um, I, I really miss all of that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the trip. So now at this point, George Saunders, uh, the book is out and you're about to go on tour. Have you started another collection of short stories yet? No, I haven't. I've got a couple of little fragments around, but I'm kind of trying to just, uh, I, I probably won't get back to work until December. So I'm just trying to be a little bit uh, generous about that and just say, well, you, you know, the well is charging up and maybe it'll be a novel, maybe it'll be stories and not worry about it. I tend to be, you know, when I'm working very kind of driven and obsessive. And um, so it's kind of a nice thing to just say, you know, I'm taking two or three months to just be a person and 
travel a little bit and we'll see what happens when I come back. Don't you ever get the urge, maybe you don't, to just suddenly a voice shows up in your head and you go, you know, I better take care of this now because it'll disappear? Yeah, I, I definitely would do that. But right now it's pretty quiet up there, which is unusual for me. So, But there's also, I think, a way in which I'll kind of say, okay, all you voices, be quiet for three or four months. And then when it's time, I'll say, okay, now it's fair, it's open season, you can you can come forward. So, But, you know, the one thing I've learned is I never say never. For years, I said, I, I'll never write a novel. And then I did. And I'll, I'll say, um, you know, have a whole, a whole idea about how uh, the subconscious works and you should never have a plan. And then sometimes just a little plan for a story to present itself. So I guess you sort of just take it, you know, wherever you can get it. You've been listening to an interview with George Saunders, whose latest book, a collection of short stories, is titled Liberation Day and Spiderhead Can Be Watched on Netflix. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 